Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Should the COVID-19 shot for kids be added to the mandatory vaccine policy at schools? Hamilton's mandatory COVID vaccination policy could spell bad news for HSR riders. Hamilton's new living wage has been released. Stark warnings are being given at COP26. The iPod turns 20. And find out why an Ontario brewery is storing some beer underwater over the winter. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Dr. Jeff Pernica, he's the head of the Division of Infectious Disease at McMaster Children's Hospital and associate professor at McMaster University. Dr. Pernica, good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, first things first, any any insights on to when the vaccine is coming for kids? Do you have any analysis or, or uh, uh, a prognostication? Yeah, I, I'm not on the inside at Health Canada, so I, I can't really speak to when they will have gone through all of that detail, unfortunately. So the question is, should this vaccine be added to the mandatory vaccination list at, at schools? What are your thoughts on that? So um, just so that we're clear about mandatory vaccines, the, the, uh, the ISPA, the Immunization for School Pupils Act, um, lists out some vaccines that children um, need to get um, before attending school. But if they don't get those, uh, it's not as though they can't go to school. Basically, the uh, parents have to undergo an education session just so that they're well informed of the risks and benefits, and then the child goes to school. So I, I think that's very important to emphasize because I think, you know, we need to be clear. It is um, every Ontario and Canadian children's right to go to school. Um, and so it would be inappropriate to prevent kids from getting the learning that they need just because their parents have different ideas about vaccines. That's a good point. Uh, now, now, when we talk about the COVID vaccine in particular, it's worthwhile highlighting that, you know, the calculus for children is different than that for adults. So the benefits of the vaccine are different for, for children, and the risks of the vaccine are different for children. So as we all know, you know, adults, especially older adults, have a very high risk of severe disease or even death from COVID. I mean, we all saw that in, in, in wave one which was unbelievably tragic, right? But now we're talking about school-aged children who, by and large, have mild disease with COVID, and hospitalizations are quite rare. Severe disease can happen, right? I'm not saying that it doesn't. And I, and I think for the majority of school-aged children, uh, it's a good idea to get vaccinated. But certainly they're at less risk than adults. And we should also emphasize, too, that the, that the harm of the mRNA vaccines is different for children than for adults, right? There have been cases of heart inflammation that are most common, right, in teenage boys, right? So somewhere between 1 in 5,000 and 1 in 10,000 teenage boys will get this heart inflammation. And, and the vast majority of these reactions are mild and they go away soon. But, but it's still something, right? A lot of these kids do go to the emergency room or are hospitalized for that. And we don't know exactly what the rates are in younger children. So at the end of the day, I think the vaccine um, is going to be a very good thing for uh, Ontario's children and for the community at large. I think there's lots of um, 
children and, and families who are going to be lining up to get it. I think that's great. I think we should, if it is licensed by Health Canada, I think we should definitely roll it out. But making something mandatory demands that we really look at the risks and benefits and consider the ethics of that step um, prior to making any decisions. Dr. Jeff Bernica is our guest, head of a, the Division of Infectious Disease at McMaster Children's Hospital and associate professor at McMaster University. Uh, we've heard from a lot of parents and those who are vaccine hesitants that they're concerned about the safety of the shot, maybe the side effects. Is is their worry valid? Because you know they might be hearing stories about heart conditions and, and whatnot. Well, I mean, I think there's the possibility for side effects with every uh, intervention that's available in medical science, you know, and vaccines are no exception. Now, the thing that I do say to parents and families every day in my clinic is that of all the things that doctors do, vaccines are by far the safest, right? The, the amount of scrutiny that vaccines get is much more than any other medication. I feel like often parents and families don't ask the same questions about this antibiotic or this pill or that, right? Um, but it's true that harm is possible. And so that's why it is really, I mean, I think a lot of public health people, a lot of physicians are thinking very carefully about how best to proceed with the COVID vaccine. I think it is very likely, okay, to the, I think the vaccine is very likely to carry more benefit than harm for the vast majority of children in Ontario. Jeff Pernica, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you, doctor. Thank you so much. And Dr. Pernica is the head of the Division of Infectious Disease at McMaster Children's Hospital and associate professor at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The HSR is out with a warning. It's warning riders that there could be some service disruptions. And it's all tied to the mandatory COVID-19 vaccination policy for city staff, which takes effect on November the 4th, which is just a couple of days from now. Uh, As of Friday, about 10% of bus drivers, this is last Friday, 10% of bus drivers hadn't disclosed their vaccination status with the city. And uh, we know all unvaccinated staff are required to take part in regular rapid testing if they don't eventually get the vaccine. So here for an update is the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107, Eric Tuck. Eric, good morning. Thanks for joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm always happy to come and talk transit with you. So what's the latest status regarding the number of drivers who could potentially not be behind the wheel later on this week? So I'm not really sure of that. Uh, I know we had the numbers on Friday. We were up around 90%. We still got about another 10% to go. Uh, and we're hopeful that we'll get there. I, I truly believe, you know, in your opening statement, you said one of the things, uh, the potential for cancellation of service uh, strictly tied to this vaccine mandate. And that's not the truth. The fact of the matter is we spent two years on the front lines going through a major pandemic, carrying this community through the economy. Um, and some of our members are just uh, from battle fatigue have retired. We have a lot of uh, operators who, you know, have their numbers. They've had their numbers for some time. They enjoy driving bus, uh, and the fact of the matter is that, you know, they've had enough, and and they're retiring. Oh, I think we lost Eric Tuck. Well, we'll get him on the phone once again. (laughs) Um, So are you suggesting there's not going to be any service resumption or disruptions? 
Uh, we're hopeful that there's not. Uh, as I said, we've had a number of operators retire over the last year. I'm not sure if you got that. Yep. Uh, just simply from battle fatigue, working through a pandemic. They've had their numbers, uh, and they've said they've had enough. They've retired, right? So we've had a number of them, and because of the uh, uh, pandemic, we haven't been able to train operators as quickly and get them into the service. So that's part of the shortage. Uh, as I said, 90% on Friday. I'm sure we're probably up around 95%. I've seen several operators coming in yesterday to pick up their test kits. Uh, so we're hopeful that we're not going to have a shortage. But if we do, I don't believe it's going to be strictly tied to this. Uh, uh, in all fairness, I think, you know, for the most part, my members will comply. So as the leader of ATU Local 107, are you urging drivers to get vaccinated or at least partake in the rapid testing? So since the beginning of the pandemic, we've urged all our members to consider getting the vaccination. Uh, we've always supported freedom of choice, uh, but through simple, uh, you know, recommending and coaching and education, we've, uh, we believe the majority of our members are vaccinated. Uh, you know, the only reason that we, we agreed this policy is because of the uh, lack of consultation. The, the announcement was made for this major policy change. And uh, unfortunately, the, the employer didn't bother to follow our collective agreement and consult the union to allow us input into this policy. Um, you know, so right off the bat, we did have to file a grievance. We have since met with the employer, uh, went over the policy, uh, some of the changes that were made, and we agree that this policy is more balanced than most. Uh, and for that reason, we are recommending that our membership follow the uh, policy and comply. What is the talk amongst uh, HSR drivers? Are they eager to get the shot? Is there some reluctance? Is there some vaccine hesitancy? So I think we're we're similar to the majority of the population. You know, we had about 85%, I think, compliance uh, who are vaccinated right off the bat uh, for the safety of themselves and their families, and we've recommended that from day one. Uh, but you always have, you know, 10 to 15 percent that want more information, want to understand better and are somewhat hesitant about what they put into their body. And that's understandable. For those drivers who uh, don't uh, receive the vaccine, is that testing done on a daily basis? Is it a, a couple of times a day? How does that work? Yeah, I'm not sure about the connection, Rick. I'm having trouble hearing you for some reason. I was just asking about those drivers who don't get the shot, for whatever reason, the rapid testing. Is that done on a daily basis? No. So uh, we, we've uh, handed out the test kits, and actually it has to be done twice a week. And we do a screening process before we start each day. Uh, that screening process has to be done each day and twice a week. Uh, those who are not vaccinated or have not declared their vaccination status for privacy reasons are required to take the test twice a week. Okay. Eric Tuck is the president of ATU Local 107 joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. It's been, well, what, 18, 19, 20 months now during the pandemic. How are the drivers doing? I know they're they're the touch point for many people out there who have to get to and from work or, or, or appointments or whatever the case is. How are they coping? Yeah, so as the frontline workers, you're absolutely correct. You know, we get the brunt of anything. Uh, and, you know, going through almost two years now of this pandemic, uh, it's wearing on us. There's a lot of stress out there, uh, constant confrontation over mask wearing and that type of thing. Um, so, you know, we're coping, but it, it's been difficult. And we got a lot of members that, uh, as I said, they're, they're suffering from battle fatigue. 
from the constant barrage of, of uh, verbal abuse over uh, requests for wearing masks and that type of thing. Yeah, it's not an easy job, that is for sure, but we certainly appreciate those who are behind the wheel because uh, they play an important part uh, in this city. Eric, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day, Rick. You too. That is Eric Tuck, president of ATU Local 107, in charge of uh, the bus drivers who operates the HSR vehicles, uh, suggesting there's not going to be service disruptions tied to this mandatory COVID-19 vaccination policy for city staff. Um, Yesterday, we told you that uh, the uh, director of transit, Marine Cause and Heath, said that, yeah, there could be possible delays because of non-compliant staff. We are developing contingency plans right now under the assumption that some of the employees whose status is still unknown may be unavailable for work on November 4th or beyond. What's difficult to predict, of course, is the true extent of what it is that we're dealing with. And uh, passengers are being advised, if you haven't done so already, if you do rely on the HSR to get around, download the HSR Now app if you do have a smartphone, and you can get up-to-date information on uh, those possible service disruptions. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Good morning, and welcome to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. My name's Rick Samprin. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. The GMH podcast is available wherever you get your favorite podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, CuriousCast.ca. The options are endless. Past episodes also online at 900CHML.com. Exciting news coming at us yesterday. The Ontario Living Wage Network has released a new living wage for Hamilton. Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Tom. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Thanks for uh, taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us on this topic. So what is the new living wage for our city? Well, drumroll, it is $17.20 an hour. And that's what a worker needs to make at their job in order to cover basic needs as, as well as participate in society. So that is obviously well over and above the minimum wage. Uh, why the difference? Yeah, it's a great question, Rick. The minimum wage was just increased at the beginning of October, but only by 10 cents. And the minimum wage, which is now $14.35, doesn't come anywhere close to meeting what workers need to earn at their jobs uh, to to cover things in their lives that come up, whether it's food or rent or or other expenses, certainly not being able to put kids into extracurricular activities. having a little bit of leisure time once in a while with the family. Those are things that the living wage calculation all takes into effect. It's interesting because it's a local number. It's based on local costs for the cost of rental housing, food, and other things. And it's still a fairly frugal calculation because it doesn't cover things like the cost of home ownership or or debt repayment or saving for kids' education. But we think it is uh, an important number because it reflects uh, what workers should be earning at their jobs uh, to be able to get by and, and, and participate. So you mentioned the minimum wage went up 10 cents back in October. Uh, what has been the hike of this living wage? What uh, It's seventeen twenty now. What was it before? Yeah, it was sixteen forty-five the last time we calculated it just before the pandemic. And as you know, Rick, uh, housing prices have been soaring in Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton's become one of the most expensive cities to live in uh, in terms of housing uh, in North America. 
And, uh, and so that's been a big pressure on, on the living wage in terms of uh, seeing the, uh, the spike upwards. But we've also seen uh, some new government investments as well. So there's been some uh, uh, new benefits that have come out from the federal government, the, um, the Canada Child Care benefit uh, that's been increased. We've seen some provincial tax credits as well that are pushing uh, the living wage down a little bit. So, but overall, um, that increase to $17.20, I, I think is what most people would recognize as, as a reasonable, very modest amount of what workers, the minimum workers should be earning at their jobs in order to, uh, in order to uh, live in Hamilton. Our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton is Tom Cooper. He's the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. We're chatting about the Ontario Living Wage Network releasing a new living wage for Hamilton. Now stands at $17.20 an hour. Um, are there businesses who are offering that? Is there a living wage network amongst businesses? Yeah, absolutely. And listeners can go to ontariolivingwage.ca uh, to find out about those businesses. And if you're a business owner yourself, you might want to uh, take a look at the certification process. But we have uh, we have dozens of businesses in Hamilton uh, that have already signed up. We recognized a few new ones yesterday, uh, including First Ontario Credit Union. Uh, we, we've seen small businesses, nonprofits, uh, larger manufacturing firms, all, all making the push to adopt living wages within their own workplaces because, because they value their workers. And we've often talked about living wage really as a win-win-win. It's, it's certainly a win for workers because they're earning enough to participate in the community. We think it's a win for employers as well uh, because when workers are earning more, uh, they tend to stay with the company longer, they feel valued, there isn't the turnover, and uh, workers don't have to put out as, as much in terms of retraining costs. But at the end of the day, it's also a win for a community because when people are earning more at their jobs, that's money that's spent in the community, it's recirculated on goods and services, and, and it's helping to create even more jobs. So we think living wage is, is something that all businesses in Hamilton should strive for. So the living wage has gone up 75 cents an hour from pre-pandemic to now. The minimum wage just increasing by 10 cents. Uh, the gap between the two is almost $3. Um, how concerning is that $3 gap? Yeah, it, it certainly tells a story of a lot of people in society who aren't able to make ends meet. They're, they're doing everything they should be. They're going to work, sometimes working several part-time jobs, trying to make ends meet for themselves and their families, but they're just not earning enough at those jobs to, to escape working poverty. And so a living wage sort of compels us to set a higher standard and ensure that those workers are valued, that they can meet their needs and participate in society. Tom, really appreciate the discussion today. Thanks for joining us and sharing this news with us. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Glasgow, Scotland for the COP26 conference, pledging uh, new ways that Canada can fight climate change. There are, have been some stark warnings at the summit. Um, Trudeau pledging that Canada's going to cap its emission on oil and gas. He's calling it a major step that he says... Uh, for a country that is rich with the resource. So what else is happening at COP26, and how is the PM's pledge being received there? Crystal Gamansing is our Europe Bureau Chief for Global News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Crystal. 
Good morning. Uh, is Trudeau's pledge going over well, or is it landing with a thud among world leaders at COP26? Well, it wouldn't be landing with a thud here, because that is the whole purpose of COP26. World leaders were supposed to come to this summit prepared to up their commitments from what we saw six years ago in the Paris Climate Agreement. So really, every country was supposed to come with a bold new plan to um, improve environmental protections, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions with the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement, which was keeping the uh, warming of the planet to under two degrees Celsius by the end of this century. So uh, we knew that uh, we were going to hear some changes. There are, of course, people who say this won't be enough, but we are seeing countries trying to up their game because that was exactly what was supposed to happen here. The Prime Minister starting his second and final day today at uh, the annual climate uh, summit by co-hosting a carbon pricing event. How's that going? Yeah, the carbon pricing event, uh, Canada is the co-chair of this coalition, and it's basically um, the issue of carbon pricing and carbon capture and storage was one of those issues that was still outstanding from the Paris rule book. And there's uh, art, it's called Article 6, and there's a bunch of different issues that remain in that area. And carbon pricing, carbon capture and storage is, is one of those key points that world leaders are being told, you need to address this if you're actually going to get a handle on greenhouse gas emissions, and we're going to try to keep 1.5 alive, which was the goal of keeping the warming to 1.5 degrees. So that was a part of the discussions. We were told what Canada is doing. Canada was, you know, an early adopter, if you will, on carbon pricing. We know that initiative did not go over well with many in Canada, but on the global stage, it is seen as somewhat of a novelty. Canada talking about not only how it put it in place, but in plans to increase the cost of carbon. So, uh, you know, the European Union is paying close attention. We have other, um, um, you know, other countries that are asking questions and looking looking at what Canada is doing, and reaction. That's important, too. What was the reaction to what Canada did, and did it calm down, and did people sort of eventually just uh, accept it and, and go along with the idea of carbon pricing because of the benefits for the environment? Global News Europe Bureau Chief Crystal Gamansing is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Not all the world leaders are at COP26. China's Xi Jinping, for example, isn't there. Russia's Vladimir Putin isn't there. The president of Brazil isn't there. Major polluters, or at least the leaders of these major polluters, aren't there. Has, has that put a damper on the proceedings? That's a really good question. And we hear a lot of people pointing out the fact that, you know, Russia isn't here. We're being told it's because their COVID cases are incredibly high and they are dealing with lockdown situations right now. So uh, there would also be people who would take exception if the leader was here at COP with, you know, 30,000-ish delegates. Um, so there are people who are highlighting that and saying, listen, these major polluters are not at the table. However, historic major polluters are here. We have to remember the United States is here. It is one of the largest polluters historically and continues to produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. And remember, the United States pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. So Joe Biden, the American president, is here. He is back in it, if you will. 
So all of the other countries, everyone who signed on to the 196 countries who signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement, um, the majority, almost all of them, are here and they're trying to come up with a uniform plan. And that is the thing when it comes to addressing climate change, is that it can't be just the odd country here and there. It can't be a patchwork system. It needs to be wide in scope. It needs to cover because what happens in the Amazon in Brazil doesn't just affect Brazil. It affects Canada's Arctic. It, you know, there's it's all interconnected here. So that's why you need all of the players at the table. Now, some of the big ones aren't, and maybe that can lead to more pressure if everyone else does come to a, a, a consensus. However, that is still one of those uh, to-be-determined points at this summit. Uh, we got about 30 seconds. What happens now? Because not all, not A, not all the leaders are there, and B, the leaders who are there aren't going to spend the next two weeks there. For instance, Prime Minister Trudeau is, is gone after today. So what happens after that? This is really now where the work starts. These are where the negotiations happen closed rooms, the the attention of the leaders, the big announcements, the flashy um, photo ops, they're done. Now it's time to work. Now they start to look at the framework. Now they start to talk about, will there be um, a a larger agreement on carbon uh, pricing? How can countries work together? What else will they do? How will we push ahead from the 2015 agreement and create a better, stronger agreement out of Glasgow. So while the leaders go away, the work actually begins. Crystal, always appreciate the time. Fantastic work, and we'll catch up with you down the road. Take care. Talk soon. Crystal Gnansing, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, joining us from COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland, where uh, a lot of the movers and shakers still moving and shaking about, making some pledges. Uh, will it improve our climate and our planet? Uh, I guess the proof will be in the pudding. We we shall see. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. 20 years ago, the iPod was first released, and it has had a monstrous impact on music. There's just no doubt about it. Here to chat about it is Eric Alper, music and pop culture expert, publicist, and shameless idealist. Eric, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Hey, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Um, 20 years. Uh, I feel old. I don't know about you, but 20 years is a long time ago. It sure, it sure is. I still have mine. I still have Do my really? one. Yeah, it's sitting there crying, lonely, <laughs> um, wondering how come nobody wants to no, uh, you know, look, a, a thousand songs. That was revolutionary. That was the first generation iPod that seemingly took the idea that you could take your music with you, which wasn't really a new idea. We could do that with the Walkman and the CD Walkman and the CD player. But this was the first time that we could actually pick and choose the music from the albums that we wanted and listen to it as many times as we want, as easy as we want, um, and not necessarily own the music. And all of that was really, really new. And if you ever want to see what the iPod really, truly did to the music industry, just take a look at those charts today, is where you have rappers working with hip-hoppers, working with pop stars, with country stars, because it allowed... No more guilty pleasures for people to really walk around listening to stuff. They- was the the one thousand songs? Was that the cap? Was that the limit? Yeah, it was. It was something like twelve 
Uh, I think it was something like 12 megabytes, which I, I, at the time was about a thousand songs, um, or the equivalent of one Drake album now. <laughs> yeah, it sounds about right. Um, how did it change how we listened to music or how we obtained music? Yeah, I think for the first time, you know, this was the, this was the moment where we stopped buying for ownership. I think for a lot of things. And when we think of Netflix and HBO and some of the other um, entertainment channels that are out there, the iPod made it really super comfortable for people to not own anything. Because as long as you were still paying the subscription um, to whatever pl- music platform it was, your music was there. You couldn't hold the CD anymore. You couldn't hold your music. It was somewhere in the clouds. And that kind of freaked out a lot of people because they were used to buying 45s and vinyl records and then eight tracks and cassettes and CDs. So for the first time, you you didn't really have to take up a lot of space for something. It was just literally in your pocket. And that changed the way how, how not only people saw music, but how they treated it, where we end up with consumers skipping over a song in seven seconds or 10 seconds, it's because there's a psychological effect of, well, I didn't pay $35 for this CD, therefore I have to listen to it over and over and over again until I buy the next one. This one was, well, I paid 99 cents for that song, and when I'm bored, I could just pay 99 cents for another song. So it, it changed the perception of how we saw music, making it a little bit more disposable because we didn't see it in front of us. Did the iPod also change how music was produced from from an artist standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. Because now when you were in the studio, you weren't making music for a vinyl record. You weren't making a maximum of 22 minutes per side um, for a record. And for the hi-fi fidelity fan at home, what you were making it for was for somebody to listen to it on computer speakers that came with your computer therefore it might have not been very uh, you know a very good sound system and you were also making it for people to listen to it with the airpods that were that came with the ipod so it was a different sound quality you couldn't really go in the way that you were making it for cds which were far superior sound for a lot of people at least from an average person perspective, look, I still have really crappy speakers on my stereo. If somebody came out with the greatest sounding album of all time on the iPhone or on whatever system I'm using it for my iPod, I probably wouldn't notice it because it's all getting filtered through my computer, through my little crappy speakers, as opposed to a $10,000 high fidelity system that I would buy if I was a huge vinyl collector. The iPod is 20 years old. We're talking about it with Eric Alper, music and pop culture expert here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. There was different variations of the iPod. There was the Shuffle, the Nano, the Mini. Did you have a favorite? Did people have a favorite? Um, I, I think the shuffle kind of blew people's minds a little bit because it wasn't so much that they were using the algorithm like we we can now, meaning that if you are continually listening to upbeat pop songs on your music streaming service, well, that's what you'll be shown. Or if you like true crime drama on Netflix, for instance, that's what will be shown whenever you log in because it kind of tries to figure out what you're thinking. Um, shuffle was completely random. So you could be getting a song that you haven't heard 
in 15 years on your iPod, um, one that you downloaded um, through no reason other than just chance. And it was kind of like a roulette game. So I think that kind of freaked people out a little bit that it was, it was so random. Um, and, and I just think the ability that it allowed people to choose the song that they wanted. You know, when, when CDs came out, there was a 78-minute a, a maximum amount of music you could put on a CD. That's where you ended up with albums having 18 songs, 20 songs, 22 songs, for the sake of, of offering good value for your money. And what you ended up happening was, you know, three really great songs and 18 fillers. For the most part, I mean, the artists would never admit that, but they might have not been the best songs as opposed to eight songs on an album back in the 70s, because that's all you could fit on a vinyl record. So you ended up with people putting more of an emphasis on the single, on like, we're going to only really promote these three songs, because that's the songs that everybody are, is going to buy. And that's where you end up with the popularity of YouTube and Spotify and music streaming services where everything now is about the song, which is funny because it's a little bit of a throwback to the 50s of and the 60s of Motown records and all these singles where every, you never got to record an album until your first three singles broke huge anyway. It seems like yesterday, but it was 20 years ago when the iPod came out. Eric, uh, thanks for the insight today. It was, uh, it was nice reminiscing about uh, the iPod 20 years ago. No problem. I'm going to go bring it up now. I'm going to go find it and <laughs> give it some love today. It'll give you some love back. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. An Ontario brewery is planning to submerge beer underwater over the winter. Say what? Terrace Mansi is the president and CEO of Lake of the Woods Brewing Company and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Terrace, good morning. Good morning. Uh, so why is this happening? What, what are you doing here? Uh, well, a couple of years ago, actually, we uh, had brought on a brewer from South Africa, and uh, he was aware of a brewery down there that had done something similar where they have a, a special edition product that they actually put into the ocean and age um, uh, in the sea for an extended period of time. So we thought, hey, this is kind of a neat idea, and we are all about lake and lake living here at uh, on Lake of the Woods. So uh, we prototyped it. And one of the partners has got a camp on the lake. And through uh, we did a Russian Imperial Stout that winter and dropped uh, about a dozen bottles off the end of his dock, pulled them up in the spring and tried them. And hey, this is a great idea. So last year, we sunk uh, just over a 1000 bottles. Um, and it went over so well, it sold out in less than three days. Um, this year, we've been able we've been, we've been able to actually put uh, thirty three hundred bottles in the water, and now obviously we're waiting for old man winter to come in to blanket it in a sheet of ice, and we'll pull it out in the spring. So, what happens to the beer when it's underwater, and what is the difference in taste compared to those that are not submerged? And that's the question. Um, so there's a few things going on. Basically what the beer is doing is, uh, lagering or aging, um, under, under water. So, you know, some people say, well, we're not really sure what it does to the beer or does it do anything? Um, it, you know, you can achieve those temperatures basically by it sitting in a fridge. Uh, it does sit in 
uh, an area of, of gentle current. So those bottles are constantly experiencing a little bit of motion, a little bit of uh, wave action currents, even though it's underneath the ice. Uh, we like to think that um, the fact that they're spending their uh, cold winter for six months in and amongst the crayfish and the fish uh, on Lake of the Woods provides something a little bit extra uh, for that beer. This year is actually a Belgian triple and it is experiencing a little bit of bottle conditioning while it's underneath the ice with the addition of our uh, champagne yeast. So this, uh, this version should be uh, quite interesting when it comes out of, comes out of the water. Uh, it'll be very, very, very smooth um, and quite delicious. Terrace Manzi is our guest, president and CEO of the Lake of the Woods Brewing Company. They are plunging a bunch of beer underwater for the winter and then we'll haul it up in the spring and, uh, well, it'll taste uh, that much better. C- can you do this when, with any sort of beer? Or does it have to be a particular type? So uh, you could actually do this with uh, just about any beer, really. Um, However, there are certain styles that would lend themselves to this type of aging or this type of environment. Obviously, certain beers, and usually with higher alcohol content, uh, lager better or age better over time. So uh, hence, our first year being a big, bold Russian Imperial Stout, that was about 10.1%. Uh, this year, the Belgian triple is about 8.6. And sometimes with these t- styles of beer, because there's so much of an alcohol content in them, you can really sort of, as part of the flavor profile, pick up, you know, ethanol or sort of that alcohol burn, I'll say. Uh, we find that using these kinds of styles of beer and lagering them properly, um, you, you lose that sort of ethanol burn and all you're doing is smoothing out that entire beer. So it gives you such a taste uh, sensation, I'll say, without that um, sort of alcohol finish to it. It's very interesting. Uh, we we got to run here, but if somebody wants to order some beer, where can they go? Absolutely. Go to deep6.beer. So that's deep number six dot beer. And you can order right online. We deliver anywhere in Ontario. Awesome. Terrace, thanks for the time today. Good luck with this uh, latest brew. Thanks so much. You have a great day. You too. Terrace Mancy, president and CEO of Lake of the Woods Brewing Company. Um, pretty cool. Pretty cool idea. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.